This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. When I've really felt safe to go deep into my well of existence or to explore something that I don't know or to like reach to the ends of my capabilities as an as a woman, as an actor, as like a feeling, breathing being, I feel like it was a milestone in my own life. It was emotional growth for me. I like evolved. I understood more deeply. I learned from Maggie and Olivia and Jesse. Hello and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm Josh Rothkopf, EW's Senior Movies Editor. I'm joined by my co-host, Clarissa Cruz, EW's Executive Editor. Hi, Clarissa. Hi, Josh. Happy Oscar nominations, Eve. Happy Oscar nominations, Eve. Very exciting developments over the last week or so, wouldn't you say? Lots of different things shaping yeah. up for the race and a lot that's just not conclusive still. <laughs> I know. That's what's that's a little bit infuriating about all these precursors. They're all really good in certain instances of predicting Oscar nominations and Oscar wins, but it's not an exact science. So I think that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, yes. First, uh, the various guild nominations, the DGAs, PGAs, WGAs, all the GAs that came out recently, as well as the BAFTAs, which is also a predictor for the Oscar race. So let's start with that. The guilds happened last week, the various <laughs> guilds. Let's start with the DGAs, because I think that's super interesting. The DGAs were super interesting. And before we get into this, just again... If anyone ever tells you that there's such a thing as Oscar logic, you can tell them that that's just not the case. There is no real logic to this. It's a horse race. There are indicators that we look to as potential predictors, but no one obviously knows for sure. So the DGAs I thought were fascinating. First, why don't we just mention the five nominees for theatrical feature film were Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza, Kenneth Branagh for Belfast, Jane Campion for Power of the Dog, Steven Spielberg for West Side Story, and Denis Villeneuve for Dune. I like that bracket, but obviously there are some people missing. Who who are you missing the most from there? Oh, gosh. You know what I'm going to say. I was hoping there would be two ladies in this category, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, who I thought was such um, a strong directing debut with Lost Daughter. And so I, I, was, I was hoping. I knew that it, was, it wasn't probable. But I, I was still hoping. And, you know, the good thing is that this category usually predicts who's going to be in the best picture race, you know, at least five of those slots. And I like that the best picture race is a bigger category. So there might be a room for Lost Daughter there. Yeah, that is a bummer. Yeah. And then also, um, I don't know if I would say surprise, but, I, you know, it would have been nice to see uh, Ziki Hamaguchi for Drive My Car here. You take the words right out of my mouth. Yes, <laughs> I, I would have I would have liked to see that. This is a blindingly white bracket of nominees. Mm -hmm. And I say that as a huge fan of a lot of these films and Denis Villeneuve and Paul Thomas Anderson, I'm, I'm happy that they're in there. But Ryusuke Hamaguchi's Drive My Car and his, I mean, there was a lot of talk about him potentially breaking into this bracket, especially after Drive My Car so unexpectedly won the three major critics awards from the New York, LA and National Society of Film Critics, which is unheard of and has never happened before. But I still think he, he might potentially break into this bracket. The DGA is usually a pretty good predictor though, right? Of what will happen with the Oscars. Yeah, pretty good. And I, and I have to say, I'm not surprised by any of these nominations. I mean, these are people who have been in the conversation the whole time. And, um, and I'm, I'm not surprised by this list at all. Um, it, it just would have been nice to see a little bit, maybe an outlier or someone else um, getting in there. Is there anyone else that you that you think should have been here? Wow. I mean, I, I think it's interesting because I think Ray Green, the director of King Richard, uh, mm -hmm. I think that I was sort of expecting him to be here, and it's mainly because there are so many excellent performances in that film, and I thought that just from the process of everyone seeing those performances, it might actually accrue and give him momentum, 
for King Richard, and he didn't quite make the bracket. I think it's it's a great piece of direction, but it also might be an indication that directing is is a larger job than just simply working with actors. And you know, I mean, it's obviously it's a job of someone who has a strong vision for a film. And King Richard is definitely an acting showcase as compared to say something like. I don't know, West Side Story, which I think has the performances and has the style and has the sweep or something like Dune. Uh, maybe maybe the DGA is, is considering other factors like command of camera and shot composition and just the sort of overall filmmaking. And not just, a, let's say, a, a director in the classic style of, say, like a Robert Altman who worked with the performers primarily. But I can't really think of anyone else who I, I'm just thrilled that Paul Thomas Anderson is there. I think that <laughs> Pizza is a film that really should have gotten even more attention and hopefully still will. Why don't we move on to the PGA Awards? Mm-hmm. The producer of Theatrical Motion Pictures, producing Guild Awards. We've got Being the Ricardos, Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, The Power of the Dog, Tick, Tick, Boom, and West Side Story. I think there are some surprises in this list. (laughs) Do you want to guess what one of them is? (laughs) Why why don't you tell me? Well, I just, I do not understand. (laughs) You got me. I don't understand. I know know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. Go ahead. Why is Don't Look Up here? Why, (laughs) why, why is, I mean, it's, look, I am, might be an outlier on the film. I don't think that this is a, a wonderful example of producing. I mean, I think that Adam McKay is an extremely talented filmmaker. I am on the record as having loved many of his films, recent and old, including Step Brothers, especially Step Brothers. But I just don't think it came together for him on this one. So its inclusion there is mystifying to me. I think there's a pretty simple explanation for it, actually, you yeah. know, because it's, it is it is the Producers Guild um, Awards. I think that they tend to honor, you know, money makers and successes. And, you know, this was a huge hit for Netflix. It, How do you know, you know that? Yeah. <laughs> it they was told a, wasn't you. it the was the most <laughs> They told but, you the number of views and the number of hours, but you know yeah, what? Yeah. Like I I I take your point though. In other words, yeah, this is a no. big this is a big glossy production with huge stars and it's a stars. very likable turn. Wouldn't producers be impressed with the fact that they just wrangled all of these people to be in this movie? I mean, it's a huge starry cast. I mean, it, it, you know, I'm not saying that that's the reason. I'm just playing devil's advocate here that it was a big success. It's a very starry cast. Lots of people watch it, even if we don't know specifically, just anecdotally. I feel like a lot of people were talking about it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there were lots of think pieces and op-eds and, you know, lots of buzz around the movie. And I think very savvily, Netflix continued that conversation about people talking about the film by like weaponizing the whole idea of critics getting it wrong. So, right. Mm-hmm. So when, when the critics reviews came in and then they, they, they had the co-producer, right. Anne McKay's co-producer, David Serrata, our co-screenwriter, David Serrata, mm-hmm. you know, tweeting about it and, and, and almost turning it into a sort of a manufacturing, almost a culture war about our critics out of touch. And then all of a sudden there were the think pieces and everything. So it yeah. wasn't even necessarily that people were talking about the ideas in the film, certainly not climate change, and neither was Adam McKay for that matter. They were talking about how, you know, elite, you know, fussy critics were the brains in the jars who were out of touch and getting it wrong. And so the the story continued to get oxygen, much to my chagrin. <laughs> in a way, it's pretty brilliant marketing because that is the war that's at the film. Yeah. So maybe that's the real producer being honored here. Yes. Meta of meta of the meta. So yeah, you know, apart from Don't Look Up, part of me was a little bit surprised that No Time to Die wasn't in there because it seems like if there was a place for something like that, it would be here. And maybe even something like A House of Gucci, just because those seem to be hits that would have been appreciated by this group for similar reasons. Absolutely. And I think that, um, I mean, those are giant productions that were pulled off by brilliant producers and directors and people like, you know, Ridley Scott, you know, who have who have great instincts in producing. So yeah, those absences were strange. Obviously, um, this is a list that, I mean, spreads around a lot more love than usual for the PGA in the sense that you have some indie productions like Coda and The Power of the Dog. 
Uh, and then obviously big gigantic productions like Dune. But it's, you know, I, I'm once again, I'm happy that Licorice Pizza again is making this bracket. I feel like this is, I, this is mainly a pretty good list, I think. I, I don't really have any major complaints apart from Don't Look Up. But if Don't Look Up makes it in as a Best Picture nominee, I'll have egg on my face, you know. <laughs> and I, I've said it here first. I, I will say it, I'm sure, many more times. Moving on, let's talk about the writers, the WGAs. Mm. Um, you know, I think one film that got a boost here was King Richard, which you mentioned earlier. Because their screenwriter, Zach Braylon, was nominated for a WGA here. And I think I was a little bit surprised by that. I mean, pleasantly surprised because I think this was a very, it could have been a very tricky movie to bring to the screen. Um, and there's also, you know, you want to avoid that sort of hallmark feel of, of uh, you know, right. inspirational feel of, of what a movie like this could have been. And, um, and so I, that, that was a surprise, but I think a pleasant one. These were the nominees. Obviously, they have two separate categories at the WGA for original screenplay and adapted. Their original screenplay nominees were being the Ricardos, Don't Look Up, once again, The French Dispatch, King Richard, and Licorice Pizza. And then for adapted screenplay, they have Coda, Dune, Nightmare Alley, Tick, Tick, Boom, and West Side Story. I wanted to just uh, put in that there are certain kind of big contenders that aren't eligible on the adapted screenplay side, The Lost Daughter, Power of the Dog, Drive My Car. Those are three that, you know, when I first saw the list, I was like, why aren't they there? Um, but they actually, for various reasons, weren't um, eligible on the yeah. adapted screenplay side. In the original screenplay category, the ones that were not eligible were uh, Belfast, Hand of God, Parallel Mothers, one movie that, that you and I love, The Worst Person in the World. Those Indeed. were all ineligible in the original screenplay category. But, you know, that would explain why Belfast wasn't in there, um, you know, and some other things that you may have thought would have been in, in those yeah. categories. But um, Change your but eligibility consideration, <laughs> right? Come on. Yeah. But still, I mean, I think these nominations that, that you read out, besides King Richard, I think this bodes well for being the Ricardos, which um, seems to to have a lot of momentum right now. Um, Aaron Sorkin wrote that one. So he'll be uh, in the conversation again this year. Um, and then there's, of course, your favorite, Licorice Pizza. And your non-favorite, uh, Don't Look Up, <laughs> in, in, in right. that same category. In adapted screenplay, I think, I mean, I was happy to see Coda there. You know, that's my, my warm and fuzzy yeah. movie for this year. Um, and Nightmare Alley, that's sort of getting a bump here, too. Uh, but what do you think of it is interesting. I mean, one thing about Don't Look Up is that, I mean, Adam McKay is an Oscar winning screenwriter for The Big Short and which I, I find fascinating when you think about how his movies are so often products of, of improvisation from the actors and, and everything, but it's a process that works well for him. And I do love a lot of his writing. So I'm not surprised that McKay's made this bracket. He's, you know, beloved by, by the WGA. We did a piece in our contenders issue with Kim Morgan in Nightmare Alley. I think that that's mm -hmm. a beautiful script that she co-wrote with Guillermo del Toro. And it's a great process of adaptation in the sense that it's not a remake of the original Nightmare Alley from 1947, so much as it's a, a return to the novel, which is written by William Lindsay Gresham. So it's, it's you know, investing material, I think, with a lot more darkness and a lot more realism and timeliness and I think that that's a beautiful example of the creativity that can be involved in adapting a property for the screen. I also, this is going to sound like a crazy opinion, but I think the script for Dune is really, really beautiful. And I know that people were like, it ends just when it's supposed to start. And, you know, it's only half a movie. And that is true. But the fact that that movie is so absorbing and sets up so much that will pay off in, a, in another movie, I think is a tribute to its screenplay. It also had to find a point of catharsis halfway through, which they did, I think, very successfully. It, it's, it's my idea of the way science fiction, especially smart science fiction, should be adapted. So I, I love that script. And, you know, I am a little surprised that the French dispatch is here. I mean, because those are cute little squiggles of vignettes. I think that Wes is better extending those out to feature length. But um, did you mm -hmm. like The French Dispatch? 
I did. I think I was in the mi- minority there. It, it is certainly the wessiest of the Wes Anderson films, but I yeah. but I like it. I'm a sucker for that. It's about a magazine. It's about writers. Right. You know, it's about on. our work. Yes. So, yeah, exactly. So, so I, re- I, I actually did really enjoy that. But let, let's actually move on to The BAFTAs because that was a big announcement as well as far as nominations. And it's interesting because The BAFTAs was where we saw things, I think, in hindsight, shift for the father and Anthony Hopkins surprise win. If you backtrack, you know, you, you could have seen that upset coming. It was just such a surprise on actual Oscar night. But yeah, so the, the BAFTAs, I think, are an important precursor. Um, let's, let's look at who the nominees for best film are. It was, uh, it was Snub City, the Beast Baptist. <laughs> this was, right. this was, uh, there were some, some, some pretty significant surprises and, and omissions, I would say here. I think the major ones, just ticking down the list, Olivia Coleman in The Lost Daughter is not a nominee. Neither is Kristen Stewart for Spencer. Playing Princess Diana, so you'd think British people would would have liked that performance. Apparently not. Another shocking omission, and this is really a problem with BAFTA, Denzel Washington has never gotten a BAFTA nomination for any performance, including mm-hmm. playing Macbeth. I mean, what does mm-hmm. the guy have to do? Play Shakespeare? I mean, it's like he has gone above and beyond for <laughs> you know a brilliant career, has never even been nominated for a BAFTA, which I think is maybe an indication of a deeper problem, maybe one of representation. And then I also think that a lot of people were anticipating No Time to Die, the James Bond film, to do much better than it did here. Dune got uh, 11 nominations and led the field. But um, the Bond franchise is basically, you know, the tail wagging the dog of the British film industry. And it's, you know, as, as many British films as we love year on year, I was a little surprised to see it not Represented as strongly as I would have imagined. Right. I think probably the more um, indicative ones were for Dune and Power of the Dog, which had lots of nominations in various categories. Um, And I think that just signifies their strength moving forward into the Oscar race. I love a lot of these BAFTA choices. They're the choices that I wish uh oscars would consider i wish these names would get more traction like if you look at the supporting acting categories both of them i mean you have people in them like ruth nega who we love and anjanu ellis and jesse mm-hmm. buckley for the lost daughter and kieran hines and belfast and even the boy from come on come on woody norman is in here and so you know, oh, Jesse that's Clemens. right. Woody Norman. Yes. Little Woody Norman. So and and yeah. Jesse Clemens, too, for The Power of the Dog. I think that his is obviously the quietest performance in that film and one of the most interesting performances. It's also, I think, a bit overshadowed by Benedict Cumberbatch and, and Cody and Smith Cody. McPhee. But yeah. those brackets are, are fascinating, the names they've decided to include. So I go into this not complaining, just sort of observing and, and finding things that are interesting. You know, it's right. I do not know why Leonardo DiCaprio is nominated for Don't Look Up. I don't <laughs> understand this. I, I mean, it's like, oh, this gosh. feels sort of like a raw bison liver kind of a thing here. I don't know. Uh, you know I what? I, you know what? I'm going to disagree with you because I did like him in this. More than Denzel? I mean. No, no, not more than Denzel. But I, I did enjoy his performance in that. I thought his character had a journey and, um, and I thought he did a, I feel, thought he did a great job. But that said, let's move on to our guest today, which um, since we were taught, you, you were talking a little bit about, you know, performances that you saw in Baptist that you wish were included. Our two guests today, I think they both had fantastic performances, and I hope to see them in Oscar nominations. So I'd like to use this last bit of advocacy for Penelope Cruz in Parallel Mothers and Dakota Johnson from Lost Daughter. You know, we've talked a lot about sort of dark horse candidates and those that we hope to get honored come nominations day. But these two performances, I thought, were pretty great. Do you want to start with Dakota, Josh? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm actually I'm, I'm seasoned in Dakota-ness right now because I've just gone <laughs> through Sundance and we saw two new performances by Dakota Johnson that are so – that just continue to burnish this new phase of acting that she seems to be entering into. There were – you had Am I Okay, which is, you know, on the surface, a, a very conventional – uh, romantic comedy from the perspective of a lesbian relationship, but brought to life with a real sincerity and kind of an impulsive humor by Dakota Johnson, who I think steals that movie. And then there was Cha-Cha Real Smooth, which was one of the best true breakout films, more of a comedy and, and less of a less of a romantic comedy and more of a sort of a coming of age movie by its director, writer and star Cooper Rafe. 
But again, Dakota Johnson playing this mother that the main character is sort of attracted to and hoping to start a relationship with, she pockets the film, steals the film. Once again, I, I feel like ever since The Lost Daughter, maybe you want to maybe you want to put it a little earlier with Suspiria, Dakota Johnson is sort of tapping into kind of um, an earthiness and uh, or, or sincerity in her in her playing and her acting. And you don't think of her anymore as you know Fifty Shades of Grey. You don't you don't think of her anymore as a product of Hollywood which she is figuratively and literally actually, but, but you think of her more like a, an indie performer, right? Which is cool. I, I like the idea of these pivots that happen with actors like Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart. Actually, Dakota reminds me of maybe she's having her Kristen Stewart pivot, right? Like she did with clouds of Silt Maria. Maybe Dakota is shifting over to more of a firm, you know, stance in the indie world, which I would love. I think she's great. And I think that her performance in the lost daughter is, I mean, that's one that you and I have been championing for a long time. And I'm glad that we have an interview with her for this podcast. Penelope Cruz, that's, you know, a completely different matter. Let's let's talk about that one. What do you love about her in Parallel Mothers? Her character is someone who's in an impossible situation. And, you know, without spoiling what it is. And she just sort of communicates that turmoil so well and so believably. And you kind of understand her choices even if you don't agree with them. And she just brings such a realness to that performance. And, you know, when, when you listen to her interview, uh, she talks about that, you know, like what kind of mother she is. And, you know, it's not exactly the same kind of, and the different, the way that different mothers are, are portrayed in the movie and the sort of lack of judgment, because there are all kinds of different mothers. And, and I, I really identified with that personally, but also just really loved her performance. I think it's one of her best, if not her best. I just really loved her in this movie. I would agree with that 100%. I do think it's her best, actually. And and I think we take Pedro Almodovar's films for granted, right? I mean, every every year or so, he's dependably there with something that's so, you know, beautiful and exquisite and has, has a metaphysical depth and has humor, has color. And and I, and I, yeah. I feel like she's playing a character that's dealt with almost an equal amount of fortune and misfortune. And, and she's playing that with a very complex blend of different emotions. I get guilt off of her performance. I also get euphoria and realism, like you're saying, like there's something that's very nuanced about it. And it feels like the kind of performance that is a complex and real portrait of motherhood in all of its, you know, fine grained nature. I, I love her in that movie. And were it not for the fact that for the most part, Oscars don't like subtitles, you know, and, and that voting block is going to find that a problematic film. I think that she would really make this bracket. And I would love to be proven wrong on that. I really would. I would love to see her bust in and be like, uh, what's an example of that would be someone like Isabel Huppert, right? Emmanuel yeah. Riva also for Amour would be another example of that. There is a precedent for foreign film actresses making it into this bracket. So we shall see. Yeah. So as we are on Oscar nominations, Eve, who do you think, Josh, is a person or project that will definitely get nominated? And who do you think will be a surprise? Well, in terms of those definitelys, I think that even though the BAFTAs got this wrong, you will definitely see Denzel Washington nominated for Best Actor. You will definitely see Olivia Coleman nominated for Best Actress. I can't even really imagine a world where that doesn't happen. Not only is Olivia Coleman beloved, except by BAFTA voters, apparently, but The Lost Daughter is, is a movie that I, I think a lot of people wish that they could give more attention to, not less. So I was already thinking that Kristen Stewart was looking shaky, especially after missing out on, on a SAG nomination. So if she didn't end up making that bracket, that I don't think that would surprise me so much as if Olivia Coleman didn't make the bracket. That would be that would be like a like a five alarm fire. I I think that those those at least among the main acting categories, those would be things that you should expect to see. I expect to see Will Smith in the best actor category. I expect to see Lady Gaga is is a very obvious one. She's definitely going to be in the best actress category. And this might be just gleaning from what we were just talking about with the DGAs and the WGAs. I think that Licorice Pizza and Paul Thomas Anderson is a stronger contender than people are giving him credit for. And I'm not just saying that because I love the film or, you know, I do think that he's in some kind of a golden age. 
And I think that this script is, is very beautiful. I would be surprised. Well, let me put it this way. I, I would be happy if Paul Thomas Anderson's momentum continued because I think that he might have a stronger showing than others may be saying. What about yourself? Who do you think is destined for a nomination? Who do you think is just on the bubble? I think Jane Campion, for sure. I would be shocked if um, she is not nominated for Best Director or if Power of the Dog is not nominated for Best Film. I still remember walking out of that screening and just being devastated and blown away. And, um, you know, it seems like a long time ago now, but um, but I would be shocked if uh, she and that movie were not in the conversation. As far as surprises, I, you know, what, um, and, I, and I, I say this, I don't think it'd be a huge surprise because I actually think he's got he's got a chance in this category um, that is so stacked. But Javier Bardem and being the Ricardos, you know, I always thought that Nicole was fantastic in that movie. I thought he was, too, but I didn't think that it was going to be in a way that the Academy would recognize. I think that's going to happen. These films have a way of sweeping up the other performers. So I, if Will Smith happens, it's more likely that Anjadu Ellis will happen too. That's that's often how that works. And I, I also uh, I, I want to shout out to our cover star as well, Ben Affleck, who mm-hmm. I think that his SAG nomination bodes well for him on Oscar nominations eve. You know, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Very exciting. When we come back, we will have our interviews with Dakota Johnson and Penelope Cruz. This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. Stream limited series Apples Never Fall, starring Annette Bening and Sam Neill, and The Tattooist of Auschwitz, based on the best-selling novel. Plus, TV movie Mr. Monk's Last Case, and the stop-motion animated In the Know, from Mike Judge, Brandon Gardner, and Zach Woods. Finally, head to the Highlands with Alan Cumming in the hit competition series The Trade. Peacock is your consideration destination this Emmy season. I'm here with Dakota Johnson, star of The Lost Daughter. Thanks for stopping by, Dakota. Thank you for having me. No problem. I really loved you in this role. I really love this movie, but I, I particularly loved you. It must have been really hard to sort of balance the kind of edginess and dangerousness of your character, but also the vulnerability of being a, um, you know, just kind of overwhelmed mother. Um, And I think you did such a great job. Can you tell me what drew you to this role? Thank you. Yeah, I think I was drawn to the role because it wasn't anything that I had ever read before. She's so complicated and um, misunderstood. And it feels very relatable. I think oftentimes when a woman is when a woman looks a certain way, you're not necessarily thinking about her mind and how it works and what she feels or how intricate and complicated her inner landscape is. So I, I just found it beautiful and heartbreaking. You know, this girl is, she's drowning, but she's, she's very severe. I just thought it was interesting. Absolutely. I'm a mom of two kids. So I got, really felt seen in this movie. <laughs> um, I'm sure you've heard this from, from other people who have seen it. But it, but the thing that I responded to was just sort of this notion of the sort of ambivalence about being a mother and giving voice to that feeling that isn't often spoken about, which is, you know, I don't always want to do this. Um, mm. What is your take on that? I found it so relieving. I think I haven't experienced that um, honesty and uh, on screen I think sometimes, you know, when you see a mother having a difficult moment and they're like, oh, I hate myself. But like, it's far deeper than that. It's far more complicated. I think like there's no way to feel great about everything all the time. And there's no way to be perfect at everything all the time. And like maybe being perfect is being flawed as a as a mother. You know, you, you, I'm not a mother, um, but I do have one and <laughs> I have a, you know, a stepmother and my, I, my family is quite complicated. So there are a lot of maternal women around and 
And every single one is so different. And the way they connect to their children is so different. And it's just like, it's so impossible to articulate. And it's a lie that you have to enjoy it at all times. And I think Maggie just tells the truth about it in this film. And speaking of Maggie, I was so floored by the confidence she had as a director. I mean, this is, it's hard to believe it's her first feature film because it's so assured, so well done. I just keep going back to the word confident, like confidently done. And how did that play out during production? Um, what, what sort of director was she and, and how did she um, relate to you? She was incredibly confident and open and really created a very safe environment on set for us to be very bold. And I feel like she's always been a director. And I think that in her heart, she feels like she's always been a director, but maybe just never allowed herself to believe in it or feel that or think it. And there was not a moment that she didn't have a fully realized response or opinion about what this movie was or you know there was never a question that she was asked that she didn't have an answer for you know she was like totally totally prepared and i think she also surrounded herself with people who helped her to be totally totally prepared in areas that she maybe wasn't so experienced she's just super smart and honest and really always looking for the truth and searching for the truth and that is so brave and liberating and like bold and her reality is wildly colorful and she brings that to set and it was inspiring and it made me feel like oh yeah I do really love this job <laughs> like I really want to want to make movies forever especially if I get the once like every once in a while the chance to work with somebody like her and you mentioned feeling safe Set. And um, one thing, you know, that I'm always aware of just watching films is, you know, the concept of gaze. And, you know, there's been so much, you know, written and talked about about the, the male gaze in, in film. And not that Maggie is representative of all female filmmakers, but what was her specific eye, I guess, in that sense? Um, you know, and how did that play out while you were filming? While we were filming, we talked about how in the, you know, in the beginning of the movie, you don't necessarily Nina doesn't speak for the first 20 minutes but you see her quite often and Maggie and I spoke about this kind of how sometimes in like old Italian films um like Antonioni films one of that was one of Maggie's references and um for for Nina especially like how he shot Monica Vitti really kind of objectified and you see these women and she wanted to, she was like, we are going to like really just watch you. But it didn't feel lecherous. It felt like being studied. It didn't feel invasive. It felt like, like being almost adored. And that is a, just an energy, I think, that comes from, you know, Helen Louvar, who is the DP, was operating the camera most of the time. And I think that energy comes from her and also from Maggie. And then she really wanted you to feel like Nina kind of explodes into the movie when she finally does speak and you see her up close and you see her, you know, there are moments where Nina's just being observed and it's a really close up shot of Nina's face, which like obviously Leda wouldn't be able to see her that close from where she is physically placed on the beach. But it's almost like we're inside her mind and what she wants to see of this woman. And it's like so cool because the stories you can tell without ever saying a word between two people is that is like, oh, what a way to use a camera. For sure. It's also your performance. I know the scene that you're talking about. I remember it very clearly because I was just like, she's saying so much without saying anything, you know, just the, the flickers of, of different emotions on your face. And I, and I thought that was so great. What is your process like? Are you the kind that rehearses a lot or is it like, you know, to get those amazing moments? Oh gosh. I don't know if like, I don't have a process that works for every film. Every film is different. Every director is different. Every character, like I really have nothing that I'm like, oh, this is something that I do every time. 
I'm always kind of working in my mind. I'm always like when I'm driving or walking or talking to people, you know, it's like, oh, that flash of this or like a little sliver of an idea or um, like I'll pass somebody on the street and be inspired by her sweatpants or like whatever, you know, it's, it's always really random, random shit. <laughs> you touched a bit on sort of the beginning where she's, she's a bit objectified. And um, the, the first thing you sort of notice are her clothes and her jewelry and her, you know, long black hair. How did that help you get into character? Did it help you? What sort of things did you take from that um, into your performance? Yes, yes. The costume and hair and makeup helps so much for me, especially like really being like saturating in the environment where we were. So being in Greece and like not caring if I was really sunburned and like really freckled and really kind of sandy and sweaty. Like I wanted it all to inform what we were doing. I didn't want it to be, I didn't want to feel fake or like I needed to constantly touch up my makeup. It was like, let it drip and be gross. And like, maybe not gross, maybe super sexy. I don't know. <laughs> but um, like, if I'm the type of woman that wears like a body chain and has like eye makeup on when I go to the beach, I'm going to let that like really live, really live on my body. It was fun. I, I really enjoyed it. It made me feel quite wild. Um, which I think is good for Nina. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, one thing, not just with Nina's character, but just with the movie as a whole, for viewers, it's an experience that keeps you off balance because it sort of opens on this scene and you're not quite sure what happened. And there's just this element, for me anyway, I felt like there was this element of dread sort of running through the whole film. So you're, you're sort of uncovering, you know, what does the title mean? What was that not yeah. mean? Um, yeah. You know, who is this family? You know, why are they bad people? And And it just sort of, goes throughout the film and the way I took it is on one level was mirroring the kind of horror of being a mother in, in a way, um, you know, because of the relentlessness, because of the sort of suffocating nature of it. What did you do to sort of keep up that feeling, you know, that tension? Was it tense? <laughs> not, not tense on set, but like, you know, what, what sort of things did you do to sort of keep that feeling going? It's funny because, I, you know, to maintain the tension on set, we only had a great time. Olivia said this the other day when we were in press, but she said she's found, and I, I agree, when you're making a film that is kind of darker subject matter and a bit more serious and tense, those are often the funniest film sets to be on because you have to have the levity. You have to have this relief. And, and it is also kind of funny and silly to like pretend to be so tense all the time. And, you laugh at each other and you laugh at yourself, or at least I do, because it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about production. I mean, um, I, I understand you're on an island in Greece. There were no cases, I think, at the time for COVID. So you really were in this bubble. Was it weird having that kind of freedom, knowing where the rest of the world was <laughs> at the time? It was, it, was, uh, it was not lost on any of us how insanely privileged and lucky we were to be able to shoot this movie on an island in Greece in the like late summer where it wasn't too hot and it was an island that didn't have any cases and we were super strict about quarantine beforehand and we all you know quarantined for two weeks and and it was like amazing I mean it was a total dream after having not been on a set in however many months and to go back to work and be on this specific set where everyone like really truly adored each other and wanted to be together and have meals together and you know like do everything together it was it was a dream that's not what every set is like I can't imagine it is my colleague Leah interviewed you all um earlier in your in your press tour you did a round table for us uh, a while back and she came back and was just struck by how much you all seemed to like each other. <laughs> and I, I, I don't want to say like that that's a rare thing, but, um, you know, she, she really felt a great vibe from you all. And it sounds like that started on set. Yeah. Yeah. We all genuinely love each other. And I think maybe there's a little bit more 
from me, I feel very attached to these women. Like I feel very attached to Olivia and Jesse and Maggie and a little bit also to Paul Mescal <laughs> because I just love him like, yeah. like a brother yeah. to me. I love that kid, boy, man. Um, <laughs> But I think I felt so sometimes I've, I've, I've experienced on set when you really feel or when I've really felt safe to go deep into my well of existence or to explore something that I don't know or to like reach to the ends of my capabilities as an, as a woman, as an actor, as like a feeling, breathing being, I feel like it was a milestone in my own life. It was emotional growth for me. I like evolved. I understood more deeply. I learned from Maggie and Olivia and Jesse. I think Jesse also experienced kind of a similar growth or like a shedding of something. And it's incredible as an artist to have an opportunity in this day and age, in this industry where you're like, oh, really, truly, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing as an artist, this is how I grow. This is how I express myself. This is how I learn. And so I feel like forever grateful to Olivia and Maggie um, for that because they, they allowed it. You know, it was, I was seen and I was held and everyone was, and it all comes back to Maggie, but um, I think it, it's, our relationship, our bond is very real because the work we did was very real. For sure. And as, as a viewer, I can, I can vouch for that. It was such a, such a beautiful and powerful film. Can we talk about Olivia a little bit? Because your scenes with her, I think, were just so electric. And I just love uh, the back and forth and the tension. Can you tell me what it was like shooting those scenes with her? Brilliant. Like, truly, every between takes, we were just, like, joking around. I'm, I'm mesmerized by her. I'm most of the time just like, how did you do that? How did you just do that? It comes out of nowhere. She's not like pacing around in the background, you know, being all Looney Tunes. She's really just like brilliant, just naturally brilliant. Is there anything that you learned from her or any advice that she gave you or just, you know, anything that you learned just by watching her? I think I learned from her more. I just admired her for being always so, um, she's like incredibly kind and generous to every single person around. And I really noticed it and I loved it. I loved that. Well, now that it's out in the world, you know, the movie's out and uh, I'm sure people have reacted to you about it. I mean, what were, what are some of the memorable reactions that you've gotten or is, or surprising even? Well, a lot, I've, experience we've experienced a lot of women really identifying with some of the themes and feelings in this film I've also experienced which is so weird to me um or not weird a little just like curious and interesting I've experienced a few young women really disliking certain roles um, like, which like one? really disliking certain characters in the film, like really not liking Leda, thinking that she's so unlikable. And I disagree. <laughs> you know, I, I understand, but that's not, you grow out of that throughout the film, I think. Um, so that's been interesting. And then the other thing that I've really enjoyed is, is men identifying with the film, like men really recognizing these women and going, oh yeah, that's my wife or that's my mother, or that's, that feels more real to me than the usual female archetypes I see on film, which I was like, okay, there's a little, we have hope. <laughs> what does your mom feel about the film? I assume she's seen it. Yeah. We watched it three times. <laughs> my mom watched it three times. And I, I don't really know. I think she's like, I think for some people it takes time to marinate i think when she's ready to talk to me about it she will <laughs> fair enough well lastly um because this is the award is podcast can you tell me some other films or performances that that you really like yes i most certainly can worst person in the world fucked me up i don't i don't remember the last time i wept i like was weirdly affected by that film i think it's 
a very good movie. Um, Why but, and I hope it gets seen a lot. Have you seen it? it it's in my queue. I'm okay. Next. Yeah, I'm so excited. Um, yeah. Why did you think it kept you up? What was it about? I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> I really have no idea. And I think if I did even try to, to discover why, I'd probably expose myself way too much. <laughs> also, what other movies have I loved? Power of the Dog I love very much. Uh, Come On, Come On, I think is gorgeous. Coda, I thought was great. Um, what have you loved? I really love Come On, Come On. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just really, I don't know. I feel like there, there were so many nice amazing ones this season i mean if you listen to this podcast i i talk about lost daughter every uh every episode so i'm really excited that you're on um okay. yeah it's, it's probably my favorite but obviously power of the dog i did like don't look up i thought it was fun but yeah i mean you mentioned two of my favorites i just thought one was just so quietly beautiful and yeah the performances and that like i really felt like they were a family yeah yeah me too also like wouldn't it be nice to have a Gabby Hoffman in your life, in your family. What a woman. I think she's brilliant. It's so fun to be like able to see these people, you know, doing all of this stuff for the lost daughter is really cool to talk to Jane Campion a couple times. <laughs> it's like, Legend. what? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thank you, Dakota, for joining us. The Lost Daughter is streaming now on Netflix. And now, my interview with Penelope Cruz. I am here with Penelope Cruz, the star of Parallel Mothers. Very nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much. I loved this movie so much. It's definitely one of my favorites of the season, and I think you're just phenomenal in it. Oh, thank you so much. Tell me about the origins of this, because I understand that you and Pedro started talking about this movie a while ago, you know, back when, when you first started writing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I think it was like almost 20 years ago and or 18. We were doing press for All About My Mother in New York. And he told me about the story, about the two mothers, what happens to them at the hospital uh, and about the photographer. At that point, you know, I was much younger and he was talking to me about the role of Anna. And of course, both roles are amazing. But for some reason, I connected with the role of the photographer and it always stayed with me. And then when we were like at the beginning of the pandemic, like a total lockdown, he called me and said, I'm writing and I'm writing this for you. And nobody knew at that point when, you know, when we were going to go back out to work. And we didn't know if it was going to be year after or five years later it was so terrifying mm -hmm. and um yeah he, he told me and i said pedro i remember you told me about this many years ago i think he didn't remember that he had shared it uh, yeah it, it's amazing how did your connection to janice evolve i mean did you think about her during the intervening years or was it always sort of in the back of your mind to return to that character yeah sometimes i wonder like and i never told him Sometimes I wonder, what is he going to do with that story of that photographer? That was so cool. Mm -hmm. But he tells me so many stories. Uh, last month, he shared one with me that he just made up. And he's, he's always creating. He doesn't stop. Like when he's traveling, promoting a film, he's writing something else. So mm -hmm. he always shares with us the stories to see our reactions. And then he forgets that he told us. But I remember. <laughs> <all of> <laughs> yeah. Can you describe Janice's character a bit? Because uh, for, for people who haven't seen the, the movie, I mean, she's such an interesting character. And I feel like there's a backstory to her that you discover through the film. Yeah. Uh, how to describe her without giving up too much of what happens to them. I mean, these two women meet in a hospital. Something happens related to the birth of the babies. Something that will keep them, keep their destinies together forever. And she... Is for me, it was very important to remember in every scene that she was an orphan, that she was abandoned by the father. The mother died by an overdose when she was a baby. So she was raised by this grandmother. She wants to honor in her life this grandmother that was all that she had uh, growing up. And for her, it's very important to, to be honest and 
then she finds herself in a situation where she has to become a professional liar in life. And she has to do that for survival. And, you know, that was really interesting to play because it's somebody that is not lying or manipulating out of um, being mean. It's just that she needs to survive. Like at this time, she feels, I finally have a family and nobody will take that away from me. That's, and she's, she's trying to protect that. And she's a good person. And at some point, she has to make a decision of speaking the truth or stay quiet forever and live with that guilt. I mean, she's she's in sort of a very impossible situation. And what I was so impressed by in your performance is that you were able to convey this very internal struggle in a, such a powerful way. Can you tell me a little bit about your process? So we rehearsed with Pedro like four or five months. And a lot of that process was about drying our own tears because the script was so amazing and what happens to them is so devastating that every time we started reading a scene, uh, we would start crying and he was very patient. <laughs> he was <laughs> always waiting and didn't want to force anything. But he was very clear about like, we're not going to have your own tears in these characters because the way that Janice expressed her emotions is very different from the way that I would. In a situation like that, I would cry nonstop all day long. And I'm happy I'm somebody that can cry easily. If not, I think I would be crazy. You know, like I need that release in my life with good things, with bad things. Like, But Janice, maybe because of her background or the relation with her own emotions is different. The, pro the way she processes things is different. And she wanted, you know, us to be able to do those scenes with a lot of contention. So then when we would have that block of half an hour of the movie where my character decides to make the decision to, to speak the truth, that's when Janice can have that explosion and that release of emotion. And then everything happens. That's when like she's like throwing up in the floor of the bathroom and like almost fainting from the emotional pain. But uh, that block had to be there, but the rest of it, Pedro needed something else like, um, bomb that is about to explode so it was all like adrenaline for like two months the the first the first block once she finds out it it was adrenaline it was almost like when you watch that part of the film it's like almost like you're watching a thriller like you're watching film noir so everything is pedro's strategy and and it's amazing you know to be directed by the orchestra director like everything has a reason. Nothing is gratuitous. And I love so much uh, this process with him. Yeah. I mean, obviously you've been working together for so many years. I mean, is there still things new to discover about each other? Or are there still things that surprise you about him? Many times he surprises me. Like last night when I was honored at MoMA, which was like an amazing emotional night, he couldn't be here with us. And he sent a video and he shocked me like in front of everybody. He said something so beautiful and so but something that he's shy to tell me alone in person but then he <laughs> was sending in a video uh, yeah. i don't know for the world to see what did he say he said many years ago you told me th that you would take care of me when when i'm older and he said maybe the time is not too far too far away and and yeah someday i hope you become uh, my mother uh, she said something like that, and it was so beautiful and so, so beautiful. it means so much to me. And I see that video, and then I had to give my speech, and I couldn't <sighs> talk. I, it was yeah. hard. It was hard to talk after that. It was really strong, really emotional. But see, he does things like that. Like he wouldn't tell me that in person. He sent, sends a video for, <laughs> for everyone to see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's amazing. And it, and it sort of segues into my next question, which is about motherhood. I have two children. Um, I, I know you're a mother. And the thing that I really responded to in this movie is, first of all, showing contemplating motherhood on screen, which isn't which doesn't happen very often, but also showing the different relationships to motherhood, you know, some ambivalence towards motherhood, the joy of motherhood, but all of it in sort of like a very textured way. How do you feel about that? And did that attract you to the role as well? Yeah, because I think it's maybe my main subject in life and uh, trying to be a, a good mother and it's the most important thing in my life. And I have a very strong maternal instinct since I was a little girl. But I love how Pedro 
can write like three different, very three very, very different mothers and doesn't judge any of them. And Janice is more similar to me, like with a lot of maternal instinct and it's her dream and she always wanted to do that. But for example, the character played by Aitana and it's a mother that confesses that she does not have a maternal instinct, but she has a grown-up daughter and she never had it and she never will. And that monologue, I think, is brilliant. You know, the way that is written, when it makes the audience understand also like that way of seeing and feeling life. And that doesn't make her a bad person. He's done that constantly in his career with all his writing. He doesn't judge in life. And of course, he doesn't judge his characters. And that is so refreshing, you know, especially like in the world right now, to have an artist like him with no filters. We have to be careful because we also need that. And I mean, if somebody is an idiot and has no filters, it's dangerous. But if somebody is like him and has that talent, that brilliant mind, that heart, that humor, he can afford having no filters. And it's very necessary in the world right now, I think. It's always been, but I feel like now we're getting to a point where we need a lot of people like him. Yeah, I 100% agree. And and, Mm -hmm. uh, his work has always been so inspiring to me. For you, if we're talking about inspiration, what do you take inspiration from? I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be for work, but um, can be in life. What what inspires you? Um, I watch a lot of cinema and things that I have loved, you know, like even growing up, I go and watch them again, like uh, all of Meryl Streep's work. I study it. I think she's the greatest. I get a lot of inspiration from music because, you know, also because I, have this relationship with the world of ballet, dance, since I was a little girl. I did it for 18 years. So all of that, I feel, is a part of me. Also music, because my brother is a musician, and music has been always very present in my life, and is still, to me, the most powerful art. Absolutely. Speaking of, of art, as you know, Pedro is very, um, is, it's very important, uh, the use of color and composition in his in his movies. And I, I just loved um you know, your wardrobe and your, your decor in your house, your character's decor in your house. Um, did you have any sort of input into that and uh, into that, that process? That is Pedro, uh, hand to hand with the, with that department is very important for him. He decides everything, every little thing that you see on each frame has been decided by Pedro. And it's amazing the way he mixes colors and textures. And sometimes you see it and say, how is that going to work? And then you see the whole thing, and of course it works. And, you know, visually, even if every movie he's done is different and completely new and doesn't repeat it, repeat itself, at the same time, you see one frame and, you know, it's an Almodovar film. It's so unique. It's, I, I love, I love his eye and his aesthetic. And it's so him. And you go to his house or to his closet and... and that is the way he sees the world. Yeah. I mean, that, it must be so amazing to be um, friends with somebody like that. What's up next for you? So I just finished a movie that I am produ- that I produced um, with my friend Juan Diego Boto, who I know since I was 13. We studied theater together when we were kids. And he's an incredible actor and great writer. And many years ago, I proposed to him to write something for the two of us to do together but it was to act together. But then when he finished the script, it's, it was so amazing. And I told him, why don't you direct it? Because I know he's going to do great things in film. And and then he said, yes. And, and we just wrapped the movie. And I'm very proud of that because I think it's going to be really special. Amazing. Well, this movie, Parallel Mothers, is very special. And um, and we love this performance. Thank you for joining us. Um, I, I, how do you feel about all of the uh, sort of attention that it's getting in the award space um, now that now that it's Oscar season? Well, I love that the movie has all these amazing reviews and, you know, what happened in Venice, like all of that. Of course, we love that. And I think Pedro deserves it. And I'm really happy and proud to be a part of it. And I try not to think too much about those things, like not to expect anything. And then if something happens, you get, of course, really happy and excited and it's an amazing thing. But I, I, I have never um, expected anything, you know, because I think that would be wrong. And I feel so grateful that, that he has given me this movie. 
I cannot ask for more. You know, if, if something else happens, of course, anyone would be excited about that. But it's not good to expect. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Congratulations on this movie. And it's so nice to meet you, Penelope. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Take care. Thanks, Penelope Cruz, for sitting down and joining us. Parallel Mothers is in theaters now. That's all from us for today. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Awardist. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation with us going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW on Twitter and Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also head to EW.com slash awardist for complete coverage of this year's Oscar race. And follow me on Twitter at Josh Rothkopf and Clarissa at ClarissaNYC1. This episode of the Awardist Podcast is hosted by Clarissa Cruz and Josh Rothkopf, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio, executive produced by Shana Krokmal, edited and mixed by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>